may be seated. Wonderful singing this evening. Thank you for being in your place. It's a joy to come again at 6 p.m. for our evening worship study, for looking into God's Word, and then also to prepare our hearts for the table of the Lord. You're an encouragement to me, and I want to say thank you uh, for being here this evening. Turn with me to the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth in chapter 3. Tonight we will be introducing uh, this next installment of our our series in Ruth, Ruth chapter 3, and looking at introducing Ruth's Redeemer. Ruth's Redeemer. And I want to pick up, it's been a while, a number of weeks since we have looked in this passage, and we want to pick up on the language that we, we heard read in, in Psalm 37. In Psalm 37, it's a, it's a perfect companion passage that you don't have to turn to. I'm just going to use it as a launching pad that was read for the scripture reading that describes what is taking place in Ruth's life at this very moment. We have looked at previously, what do God's people do when they don't know what to do? What do you do when life is hard, and there's loss, and there's death, and there's circumstantial change, and there's transitions, and there is just a panicking fear of what is about to happen, what is next? And some passages that we've looked at to kind of guide us in the past already is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that we trust in the Lord with all our heart. We lean not into our own understanding, and in all of our ways, we continue to glorify God. We magnify Him. We bring Him into the moment. We, we bring Him into whatever the situation is, and we continue to worship at that place. We build altars of worship there, if you will. The Christian is a singing Christian. God's people are a a singing people. We're more than that, of course. We're a praying people. We're a reading people, all of those types of things. But what makes God's people unique is that they are a people that rejoice in their sovereign God as he shepherds them through these difficult type of situations. So trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not into your own understanding, and in all of your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. And what we find in Psalm 37 is what Ruth has been doing, not fretting because of evildoers understanding, verse 3 of Psalm 37, that, that she must trust in Yahweh. She's completely confessed Him and owned Him as her God, her covenant-keeping God, and she's trusting in Him and doing good. Verse 3 of Psalm 37 says, trust in the Lord and do good. And as we've looked at previously, what do you do when you don't know what to do? Well, there's some basics that we don't ever stop doing, and that's being good and seeking the will of God saying, God, how can you use me where you have placed me? How can you use me for the flourishing and the good of those that I connect with just in everyday living? And it doesn't matter about what's going on with me. Help me to have an outward perspective, being led of the Spirit that says, let me pour my life, let me be Christ to someone else. And that's what we see in Ruth. Ruth has owned God, and God has owned her. And God begins to work in her, and she begins to pour out her life and care for Naomi. She begins to love and take next steps of provision and care. And she shepherds Naomi when Naomi is in a very dark spot spiritually and emotionally in her own grieving in life. And tonight we'll introduce and see that now Naomi begins to step in and help Ruth when Ruth doesn't know what to do. Now the two don't know what to do are not the same thing. And the circumstances are not on the same level, but they're still very real. Ruth has hit a wall. What's next here? And Naomi begins to embody what she has been reminded of in Ruth and how God has used Ruth to minister to her. Then we see Naomi begins to take the lead here and begins to mentor and lead and guide Ruth and what the Lord would have for her. 
Ruth embodies and follows what we see here in Psalm 37, that to trust in the Lord, to do good, and to dwell in the land, and to feed on His faithfulness, to delight herself, for our purposes here, also in the Lord, and then He shall to give you the desires of, of your heart. And what we find here in Ruth chapter 3 as we turn there is now that Ruth has been delighting herself in the Lord. She's been trusting in the Lord. She's been pursuing the Lord. And now what she will discover and find is that His will and her desires are in alignment. Now those two things are not to be separated. We often think of God wrongly of if I do this, then God will do this. If I am obedient here, then God will give me this here. Friends, we don't barter with God. We don't manipulate God. We don't, we don't make Him do what we want to do. But that is not to say that we don't pray and petition and, and make requests, specific requests. So we live in this tension of saying, God, here's my heart. Uh, here's, the, the hymn writer said, here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for your courts above. Lord, here's my heart, and here's my petition, but I rest in your will. And whatever you have, I will delight in that, because God, I know that what you have for me is what is best for me. Now turn with me to Ruth chapter 3, and we're going to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, to lay our foundation and then introduce this next step in, in the series of Ruth. Ruth chapter 3, verse 1, Now then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter... Shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not a relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, Ruth, wash yourself and anoint yourself, put on the best garment and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in. You shall uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you then what you should do. And she said to her, All that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had instructed in her. Verse 7, And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and, he came, and she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled, and he turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered and said, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. This is the word of the Lord. We continue to find in this beautiful story of Ruth that God's providential care has led her to this moment. God's will and providential guidance through people and circumstances have brought Ruth to this very moment of meeting with Boaz. We think of this as something that is unusual as we read it in our English understanding, in our Western thinking, 
on our own culture, cultural mores and, and just ways of doing things, as we read this account, as we just did, it's unusual to us. And yet, because it's in Scripture and because the culture is different than ours, we understand that there's a sense of beauty to it that is different. We wouldn't feel comfortable doing it. And to be honest with you, I'm sure Ruth did not feel comfortable doing it, but yet it was right and good for that time and that place. We'll look more about that in, in just a few moments. I want us to frame our thoughts beginning with number one tonight, the plan that we see that Naomi proposes, the plan. Verses one through four gives to us this proposal that Naomi gives to Ruth. And so at the end of chapter two, in the beginning of chapter three, there is a, a laboring that is taking place. There is a har- harvesting that is taking place. And all of that is now coming to a close. Notice back there with me in verse 1 that Naomi, specifically, it's as if she comes up to Ruth and says, Ruth, we need to talk. My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? And then she begins to give specific instruction for some next steps that Ruth has not had. Until we saw at the end of chapter 2 where Naomi says, do not go to another field. Boaz says, don't go to any other field. Stay right where you're at. And Naomi begins to realize when Ruth comes with the report that I have worked and harvested, whose field did you harvest in? Well, I harvested in Boaz's. Boaz! I didn't think of Boaz it's as if the text reveals to us. So now Naomi's been formulating and thinking, how should this go? What should we do? And maybe just waiting and watching to see what happens. So each day as Ruth comes home, it's almost like, well, how did it go in the field today? How did it go at work today? How did it go? Whatever. And uh, we don't know what's happened. It's, we don't know if it's hit, if, if obviously these are dreams and wishes or whatever. But the text just reveals to us that Naomi decides some next steps are, are needed. And so this is normal. It, it, again, it's unusual to us in our cultural way of thinking but here we find in the text that Naomi has a sense of responsibility for Ruth. She begins to guide the opening scene here. She loves Ruth, and she feels responsible to, to help her daughter-in-law and is thinking towards her future. And again, this is a cultural way of thinking, but it reminds us how Naomi turned to Ruth and Orpah in chapter 1, if you remember, on their way as they began to come home, and she began to think this way. She began to give instruction of saying, my daughters, go home to the, the room of your mother, where weddings are planned in, in the home. And, and my daughter, go home. There is a future for you here. Stay here. And here we see this concern resurrected in the similar way that she feels responsibility for Ruth and for her future. Verse 1, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? What is she talking about? Well, what Naomi has in mind, very clearly that we know, as we know the whole story, is, is marriage. In fact, this same language was used, chapter 1, verse 9, the Lord grants you that you may find rest, each one of you, in the house of her husband. So this reveals to us that Naomi cares about Ruth's future security. Just a reminder to us, we live in a different day and age, but there are some principles that don't change. As we think about God's plan for, for marriage and men and women, Naomi is kind of serving in the role of in the absence of a male headship, in the absence of a father, in the absence of male leadership in the home, Naomi is taking on all of this responsibility, and she's working to arrange a marriage according to God's pattern and provision in the law. Now, as we see here, Naomi cares for Ruth's security. It's just a reminder to us that Ruth is not in a safe situation. We've, we have pointed this out previously. As a single woman that is 
going out to work in the field. She, she is at danger, and God has wonderfully led her to Boaz's properties to provide for work, and she experiences that blessing and protection. But Naomi's concerned. She knows we need something more permanent. And so secondly, we notice here in this text that Naomi cares for Ruth's not only future, future security, but she's concerned about her future happiness. She is loving Ruth as she loves herself. Verse 1, she says, so that it may be well with you. This word well means that it may be glad with you, that, that your life may be pleasant, that you may be rooted in the blessings of marriage. In other words, modern vernacular, Naomi says to Ruth, Ruth, I want you to be happy. Ruth, there is a hope and a future for you. And Ruth, I want you to rediscover the joy of marriage. Now, we're reminded here that Naomi knows the law of God. She knows the law concerning the kinsman redeemer. And she is putting a plan in place to guide Ruth to go to Boaz in obedience with God's provision in the law. And that's the key understanding of chapter 3, which is awkward. You read commentaries. I just quit reading commentaries because there is so many, so much convolution. It just, it's muddled and muddied. I just thought this is, not, this is not helpful. So I just got out of the commentaries. Not all of them. You know what I'm saying. But so many people have just weird thoughts on this. And chapter 3 is unusual. And again, these are cultural differences. So Naomi knows the law of God. And the key to this understanding of unlocking chapter 3 is God's provision in the law, particularly of leveret marriage and the kinsman redeemer. So Naomi's knowledge of God's law leads to understanding that God has provided for the roots of this world in this time. And this is what guides Naomi's initiative, if you will. So she begins to formulize a strategy. Look there with me in the text in verse 2. She wants to rem remind Ruth of a number of important things. And the first one is reminding Ruth that Boaz is related to us through Elilemic. Boaz, and again, that's not real clear. What is the degree of relation? As we're going to find out after Ruth comes to Boaz, Boaz reveals to Ruth, well, there is one closer than I. And so I can't accept this proposal just right off the bat. So she informs and guides Ruth, reminds her that we are related to Boaz. He's not just a kind man showing interest in you, caring for you. And by the way, if you remember, if you were not here with us, we concluded our last message with what is it that we, as we put together the scriptures and the text, what was it maybe that drew Boaz's heart to Ruth beyond maybe natural attraction, beyond circumstances, beyond opportunity? One thing we saw in the text was that Boaz is, is a good man. Boaz is a, is a godly man. Boaz is a godly man. He's a blessed businessman, and he's using these things for human flourishing and the good of not only God has blessed him, but he has a care and concern for other people. He's a spiritual man. He invokes blessing and God's presence into his interactions with his workers, and he shows concern for new strangers who appear in the fields, and that's what leads him to Ruth. And we ask this question, what is it maybe that led Boaz to have a natural inclination towards Ruth beyond maybe physical attraction? And we looked at it, it's got to be the fact that Boaz's mother was Rahab the harlot. And that's like a little golden gem there in Scripture that, as we were laughing about after that last sermon, we were talking about a group of us individuals, we were talking about that fact, and it just reminds us that in our Bible reading plans, friends, we should not skip over the genealogy so quickly. There are, there are, there are gems between the, the verses, 
as we walk through God's pattern and faithfulness and plan for His people. And we assume, the Scripture does not explicitly say, but it's not hard to, to see that Boaz has a heart for the stranger. Boaz, Boaz has a concern, and that has to be, must be, connected to the fact that his mother experienced the same transition into the life of the Jewish people. Now, we see here in verse 2, she begins to inform Ruth, not only reminding her of their relation to Boaz, but now she begins to inform Ruth of the activities and the habits and the patterns of the conclusion of harvest season. And she informs Ruth of the activities that Boaz will certainly be engaged in. In verse 2, you know, you imagine Ruth's just been working, she's segmented, she's in her corner, she's doing what she's been allowed to do, but she doesn't understand maybe how all of these other things work. And so Naomi begins to instruct her, and she says, in fact, verse 2, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. This speaks of the concluding process that after the harvest came to a close, after the harvest came the winnowing process. They would find a, a high hill, a high point in a, in, a, in a place of the plain where the farms were. They would go into an elevated area and they would toss the threshed grain and huss high up into the air and separate the solid good grain from the quality grain from that which would be uh, separated and flown into the air. And this process would continue again and again on the threshing floor. It was laborious. It would be hot. They would be sticky and yucky. You can imagine chaff and other things just flowing in the air. I've been working, as I'm sure many of you have, and pulling beans from gardens and picking flowers and flower gardens and cutting grass. And this July heat, my goodness, you just get to where you just, you get, you're a mess uh, at the end of it. And you've got sweaty, yeah, you get the idea. And you've got grass and just all this stuff stuck to you. You can only imagine uh, this process. At the conclusion of this labor, this effort, late into the night, they would celebrate giving thanks to God, giving thanks to Yahweh at His uh, provision. They would celebrate with thanksgiving, and they would have a meal, and they would eat in this barn type of atmosphere on the top of the hill. Most of them would be sent home, many commentators say, and yet some would be asked to stay behind to guard in the certain areas or keep a watch upon the good grain so that no one would come in the night and steal their, their money as they, before they took it to, to sell at market. And so this is what is happening. She informs Ruth that this is what happens. This is the tradition of our people. And Ruth, here's what you can expect. Thirdly, she instructs Ruth concerning her physical preparation. And this is where it's, it's good, it's funny, and yet it's classic and timeless, this advice that Naomi gives to Ruth concerning her physical preparation. Before she initiates this meeting with Boaz, Ruth, as a loving mother, or mother-in-law, gives practical instruction to set this thing up for success. So evidently a bath is in order after a long season of, of reaping. And so we look here at the instruction that she gives. She points to the importance of just being clean, cleanliness. In verse 2, she gives instruction to Ruth. These are bullet point commands. Ruth, go anoint yourself, go wash yourself, take time to prepare. Notice in verse 2, the, the word anoint points to the aspect of perfume, lotion, feminine qualities. We're reminded in the gospel record that the woman who came to Jesus and, and broke her container of 
of anointing perfume or ointment upon Jesus. It was costly. It was special. It was reserved for many things. We're not going to unpack that text, but some would say that not only used sparingly in natural everyday life, but ultimately for funerals and burials and those other things. And this is the instruction that Naomi gives to Ruth. Ruth, let's control the things that we can control. Let's set this up for success. Let's put our best foot forward. Verse 3, put on your best dress. Put on your best garment. And let's go before the Lord and commit these things to Him, but let's not make it more complicated than it has to be. Now, y'all are looking at me like you've never heard this before. I know you're, you've got, I mean, are y'all with me tonight? It's just funny. It's just practical, common, everyday advice. You can imagine if Ruth came straight out of the fields, good intentions, certainly following the law of God, but Boaz is human after all. And she's covered with sweat and grime and grit. Yeah, you get the idea. So this is Naomi's plan. She gives detailed instruction on what to do. And then next, she begins to guide her, and this is so important too, on timing. Timing is everything. Ruth, don't go in there claiming your rights. I, as the classic Shirley Temple movie, I, I know my rights. I know the law. What I say, I saw, I saw. No, listen, don't go in there talking about your rights or that type of thing. Win his heart, Ruth. And so timing now is pointed to this. We are remembered, reminded of the phrase, timing is everything. So she gives instruction to Ruth to wait until Boaz is completed with his, with his work. She knows men well. She was married to one. She had two sons. Ruth, don't, don't introduce anything important until he's done with the task, until he's done with his work. And then Ruth, don't start then. Ruth, don't start until he's done eating and drinking. When all of that is completed, then Ruth, that's the time. So she guides her on timing. Then she guides her on place. Notice in our text, she guides Ruth where she is to the exact place. She is to find where Boaz lays down to sleep for the night. And she is to find that place. And she is to lay down, key phrase here, at his feet. Again, we get it. It's unusual. And then the third thing, not only timing and then place, but manner. Manner is important. She is to present herself not with a dialogue, not with words, not with speaking, but Ruth is to come, and she is to humble herself, and she is to lie down and wait upon Boaz to discover that she's there. She's to wait upon Boaz before she begins to, to speak. This is, this is classic advice on a number of levels in both spheres, not only in her physical preparation presentation, but friends, time, manner, and place are just natural wisdom, aren't they? There's a wisdom to life, and there's a wisdom to situations, and there's a wisdom. I'm afraid, as I was walking through the text this afternoon, I was just thinking, I think many times we're doing something that's good, we're doing things, something that's right, but our timing is off. Or maybe our timing's right, but the manner's off. Or maybe the timing and the manner's good, but the place is off. Does that make sense? And you put all those things together, and it's just saying the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Sometimes we can just be so selfish that we sabotage our own thing, something that is good and right and natural, but we're the ones who mess it up and how we handle it. Just some practical life advice and wisdom as we see from how Naomi is guiding Ruth to handle this whole situation. So this is bold advice 
to be sure. And this is where it gets weird in many of your readings and extra biblical sources. And I just want to make this one point. We need to be careful as we look at this aspect of this text to make the distinction between boldness and impropriety. What Ruth is doing here is courageous, it's humble, it's bold, but it is not improper. It is not improper. Here, nothing in our text suggests that what Naomi is giving Ruth to do, the instruction that she's giving to her, is something that is breaking biblical law or breaking cultural decorum. In fact, it would help us to maybe stop and think for a second that the norm here is arranged marriages. Arranged marriages is the norm. This is how this thing works. And so we're working at this thing from a different angle But the reason it just sounds so awkward is oftentimes the parents have no involvement whatsoever. More about that in a moment. But the parents in American culture today, we're so off off hands, if you will. So it's just all of it rings cross-grain or feels cross-grain to us. In fact, just want to remind us, we're not going to turn there, but Deuteronomy 25 gives women, and not only the instruction as we think through this provision of the law for for Ruth to be redeemed, but it gives women the right to initiate the redemption process. And here's why. Maybe if you're thinking, where's the romance in that? Well, here's the thing. For many, this is God's protection for the woman, but for many, the men did not want to marry the woman. This is more about the woman than it is the man. But what makes this aspect so beautiful is that this is a beautiful love story. When Ruth comes to Boaz, Boaz is not feeling like his arm's being twisted and he's having to do his duty. That would be bad, wouldn't it? We see, we're not going to walk through the Old Testament tonight, but there are a number of examples in the Old Testament where the woman would come to the father-in-law or come to the, the brother in seeking to initiate this process, and they weren't wanted. That The men did not want to take that provision, and so there was a process for them. They were to take off the sandal of the brother or the individual, the next closest kin, and they were to spit in his face. They were to publicly humiliate him because he was lower than dirt. He was not made to follow through. He could choose to deny it. In fact, some situations in the Old Testament, God kills the, the individual because they would marry the, 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 the sister-in-law, if you will, and yet they would not fulfill their duties of marriage, and they would go about it a different way, and in one instance, God killed the man. So we can look at those instances, and the reason this rings differently to us is that this was more about God's love and protection for the woman and the future line of the deceased man than it was about the love story aspect. And that's what makes this so beautiful, is that when Ruth comes to Boaz, Boaz's heart leaps. This is not drudgery for him. This is delight. This is one where, this is his... Maybe in his mind, he was already thinking this way, and he just did not think that she would ever maybe want this. We'll look at that next time together, his response at Ruth's proposal. So Naomi has assumed the role of a mother here, and she devises this plan that is bold and daring, but it is not wrong, it is not indecent. So I want to conclude tonight by just thinking about some practical advice for us as a church We don't preach on marriage a lot, but this text now leads us to a point to just kind of remind all of us that have up-and-coming children, teenagers, and in future instances where this may apply, that it just reminds us of the biblical responsibility that we have as parents when it comes to our children 
in marriage. And I just want to point to four or five kind of key principles as we think about how Naomi is guiding Ruth, what it just reminds us of our responsibility as parents to our children. So number one, one thing we see is that, that we as parents should model biblical marriage for our, for our children and those within our sphere of influence. And I believe Naomi did this. It's obvious that Naomi and Eli Lemek had a, a, a meaningful marriage. It's obvious that they lived out their distinctive lifestyle and principles that Yahweh had instructed them and guided them on. Because one thing's for sure, these two girls would not even have a hint of wanting to go with them if there wasn't some type of meaningful relationship, not only between them and her, but just in the life of the family. It's almost as if, as what we see here, is that these are adopted daughters. Ruth and Orpah were drawn into this distinctive family unit that came into their pagan culture. It's not to say in Moab they didn't have marriage. It's not to say in Moab they didn't have meaningful marriage. And it's not to say all the things we could come up with. But one thing is clear, that this faith couple, this family, God's people, even in their rebellion and disobedience, had distinctive principles in their home and in their marriage that were influential upon Ruth and Orpah. And it's a reminder to us, not only here, but in all of Scripture, that parents, we need to wake up sometimes. We've been married 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and sometimes our marriages can get stale and sour and stagnant. And we forget that, that there are children and grandchildren that are watching us and that we're to be living out the gospel, literally the marriage unit, the blessing and the institution of marriage is the gospel, a portrait of the gospel before our children. It's not just when we get our children raised. It's not just at a certain point. Listen, it is for all of life. And I don't think there's a parent or any parents in here tonight that would say, you know what, I don't want my children to have a wonderful and wonderful blessed marriage. No, we want that for our children. We want that for our grandchildren, but yet somehow we can lose sight of what our marriage is supposed to be. May that not be the case. May we as godly Christians repent of selfishness in areas where maybe we've lost that love, and I don't mean just feeling. I'm talking about commitment and loving kindness, hesed, as that we show towards our, our spouse and revive that. One of the greatest influences for the biblical standard of marriage is children and grandchildren growing up, and children in the life of the church growing up and watching God's people live it out in a beautiful way. Secondly, an, another point I just want to make here is so as we think about this, that we should believe live and teach the biblical convictions that make for a godly home. We should encourage marriage is God's plan. It's not necessary to say that everyone will get married, but marriage is a good thing. Marriage is God's invention. Marriage is God's design. And so we should live out the biblical conviction as we raise up the next generation here at Grace Church that marriage is beautiful and good. Now, as obvious as that is, friends, we live in a world that doesn't believe that. We live in a world that, hold, that, that devalues marriage. We hear of movie stars and singers that are children, and if, hopefully not our children, but people are influenced by and they're in the, the headlines. And you get the idea. We listen to their songs or watch their movies, and they just have this idle status. And then every day, there's not a day in the news that we don't see that they're divorcing because they've lost the love, the feeling's gone. And, it's gone. So how do we counter out that type of thing that, that our children see in the world around them? We, we live it. We model it. We teach it. We preach it. 
We remind him that marriage is beautiful and good. This is God's plan. This is his design. We teach them the conviction that that marriage is permanent. That we are to live it for life. That is not to cover all the, the issues that come up. Just making the statement that God's design for marriage is permanent. Does it happen? No, we live in a Genesis 3 world. We get that. But friends, does it negate the responsibility that we have to teach this? To teach this is what God's design and plan is. Parents and grandparents, may we model in the home the life of worship, distinctive culture in the home, family worship, you could call it, corporate worship. May, may the rhythms of grace in our weekly rhythms, may the Lord's Day be that day that it's a decision that solves a thousand decisions. What are we going to do this Sunday? What are we going to do this Sunday? It doesn't mean we never miss a Sunday, but the idea is, is that the rhythm of the home is that we, we worship at home around the means of grace, and we worship with God's people. This is an item of first preeminence and importance that our children grow up in this atmosphere and that we teach them along the way, here a little, there a little, Deuteronomy 6, that the mom and dad unit, the male-female unit, is strong and strengthened. This is what we do. All the while asking the Holy Spirit of God to come and to light the fire that only He can light. We all enjoy camping out, or maybe, maybe some of us don't, I don't know. We enjoy a good fire, we'll put it like that. We put the wood in place, we prepare and do everything. We recognize that, but we need the Holy Spirit to light that fire. And so our job is to be faithful and to prepare and to guide and point and to teach. And it's our job as moms and dads to teach the next generation the biblical way of thinking, biblical worldview. Predominantly, how is our purposes here, how it relates to marriage. Thirdly, we should teach them discernment. The difference in good and evil, right and wrong. And that includes what to look for in a future mate. What to look for in a godly spouse. We're modeling, we're modeling it ourselves. We're, we've placed them in a community of God's covenant people that are living it so they know that mom and dad aren't crazy, if you will. The local church is an aid to us. The local church is a benefit to us, friends. We need each other as we live out this gospel and this truth and the truths of Scripture, the implications of Scripture. And as our children look around, they say, well, I know mom and dad say this, but what does the church say this? Well, I know we may not agree on everything. We do need to agree on things like this. Can two walk together unless they be agreed? And I'm not saying we're not grace. You're doing a great job. But hear the word of the Lord as we're here. We need to saturate them with Scripture like Proverbs that describe the wise man and the wise woman. Biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. Take a proverb a day and as a family before you head out the door, read it together. Hear the word of the Lord. Read it together. I'm not prescribing you. I'm just giving you examples. But maybe take just one verse and use that to guide your, your family devotions. But moms and dads, we cannot be asleep at the wheel. Number four, just another succinct point that we see regarding marriage and this beautiful picture here in Scripture and biblical principles is that we should try to pray for our children's future spouse and also teach them to do the same. Teach them to do the same. Fathers regularly Remind your sons that they want to find a girl like mommy. And mothers, regularly remind your daughters that you want to find a man like daddy. Keep these things vibrant and lively. And of course, that necessitates and points to the fact that 
these are all that we're living as we should. Lastly, just another fifth point, brief point. We should guide our children and give them practical guidance in how to go about establishing a godly relationship. And whatever that is for you and your home, and we will have, as God allows, future teaching as we come to it in the scriptures, or if you want to talk, we can always talk and say, what are your thoughts on this? But friends, whatever it is, you need to guide them and teach them something from Scripture. You need to guide them. So many parents today just have this hands-off, whatever happens, happens, and uh, we, we're not in control of who our children date, or you know, those, those, those things are out of our hands. Friends, they're absolutely not. And while we do not live in the day of arranged marriages, and I'm sure all the young people here tonight are saying, praise the Lord, that does not mean that we don't try to counsel and guide and influence and advise. And we pray that the Lord would use us and bless our church, particularly as we think about the next generation to come, and those who are not even here yet, and uh, as we think about just this biblical institution of marriage. Whatever Naomi and Ellie Lemick's marriage was, it was something that was a witness to Ruth and Orpah. And now that Naomi is starting to give this next plans of instruction to Ruth about her Redeemer, her kinsman Redeemer. It's something that Ruth, whatever it is, not trying to glamorize and overdo or gloss over these things, but whatever it is, it causes Ruth here in our text to simply say, I will do it. Verse 5, And Ruth said to her, All that you say to me, I will do. Now what does that sound like to you? Naomi, I've seen your witness. I've seen your life, and I trust you. I rest in you. It's not to say, Naomi, you've been the shining example of all that you should be. Not at all. So parents, <laughs> I mean, we've seen Naomi. At her. If you're hearing me this evening and you're discouraged about something or you're hearing some of these things, friends, let me just encourage you. God uses broken, sinful people. We see Naomi at her best. And her best isn't yet. We'll see her at her best at the end of the chapter, but we also see Naomi at her worst. She's literally counseling her daughter-in-laws to go away from Jehovah. She, she's not thinking clearly. She's not thinking wisely. She's not thinking, in a sense, she's thinking fleshly. She's thinking humanly. You're more likely to find, a, we, yeah, we're not going to pack all that. We see Naomi at her worst, but we see her now getting back on track. And whatever their marriage was, it was something that was beautiful and good it's something that the Lord used to impact Ruth. And it's going to lead to another family. It's going to lead to a new marriage and ultimately one where the line of the Messiah will come from. It'll lead directly to King David and more importantly to the true and better and greater David. Well, let's prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we love you. And these Old Testament passages, they're different, of course. They're beautiful. They're they're lengthy, but there are so many just good nuggets and points for us to remember and to consider. I pray that you would strengthen your people in the Lord. Father, there's so many things that are yet to come that you have in store for all of us. There are some who are in the throes of parenting as we've discussed some of these, these future outlooks, and it's a reminder to us that we need to pray. We've not been praying uh, as we ought. We need to pray for the future spouses that you would have for our children. Father, there are some of us who need to repent of our, our own actions in our own marriage. Our marriage has grown stale and stagnant. It is not 
beautifully exemplifying the gospel, we've grown familiar. Lord, would you show us and give us insight in how you could stir our hearts to these things afresh and anew. Father, thank you for the gospel that we see displayed here in Ruth. We need it. We need to be reminded of it. We stand in awe of your providence and how you faithfully execute your decree throughout time and in history, superintending your people and bringing about the consummation of the birth of the Messiah who would come and live in our place, who would die in our place, and who was raised in our place for our salvation and justification and our being sanctified even at this very moment. And one day we will be glorified because of this beautiful story. Father, thank you for all of it. It's in Christ's name we ask and pray. Amen.